It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to this episode of Kennedy Saves the World. And we really haven't spent any time talking about the late Queen Elizabeth II and her influence on culture and pop culture, which has been enormous, especially in the last, I would say, six years. Uh, the, The Queen has obviously loomed large over Great Britain and the world for 70 years. But for a lot of Americans... Um, They didn't develop a ravenous appetite for her until 2016 when The Crown debuted. And, you know, a lot of people watching the Netflix series just couldn't get enough about her life. It's an incredibly interesting life. But one of the most interesting things is, in addition to her longevity, is her reaction to everything that has happened around her. And, you know, there are a lot of people who have really remarked at the stability that she provided and uh, the comportment, which is so lacking, especially in American politics. So I want to talk about the queen and her influence and, and what she meant to people, what she meant to Americans and the lessons from her life that could positively influence our lives because they have been entertaining, but is there is there something in there that we could take away and make our culture and our society somewhat better just having known her story and gotten a glimpse? So to help me do that, I've invited critic, historian, and Wall Street Journal contributor Dominic Green to the podcast. Dominic, welcome to Kennedy Saves the World. Your Majesty, thank you. <laughs> Uh, So tell me about the Queen's ability, because you wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal, and it really resonated with me. Um, There's something about a respect that is earned when someone takes the slings and arrows that are thrown at them from every aspect of their life. And, you know, they humbly dodge things, but they manage to find a way through it and even forge a new identity. And I don't know if anyone on earth has done that more than Queen Elizabeth II. How did she do it? And I think you're right. And I think it was a life of grace under pressure. And very few people came under more pressure or showed more grace. Um, If you look in the big picture, uh, she was the queen during a period of uh, serious decline at some points. And yet she kept on, soldiered on regardless. She was born, you know, to inherit an emperor's throne and uh, yet presided over the shrinking of Britain's global uh, prestige and so on. But you wouldn't have known it from uh, how she carried herself because she carried herself with the same dignity and decency and sense of duty throughout. And and I think those are probably uh, the things to take away from it. Dignity, decency, duty. And there's something, you know, people, we talk a lot about the bad side of human nature. And, you know, we we marvel at what human beings are capable of. And that's where we focus so much more of our attention. And 
you know, whether it's mass shootings or politicians insulting each other and their constituents, you know, it's really easy to focus on the bombast. And sometimes it's a little less exciting to focus on stability. Um, But there's something about her portrayal in The Crown, and it's a show that I'm obsessed with. And when I say I've seen every episode 15 times, that that might be an under-exaggeration. Uh, because I'm, I'm to hear this, but I am as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm really fascinated, not only, you know, with the actresses who portray her, Claire Foy and Olivia Coleman, um, but e- even with Claire Foy, like, there wasn't a lot of video. There, there wasn't a lot that, that she had written first person, and so much of it had to be imagined, you know, and sort of this dressing around these actual cultural events. What is it about that show that resonates with people where they just couldn't get enough of her life story? Well, I think, and I I agree with you, I think it's a tremendous achievement. Um, I, I think the crucial thing that it does is emphasize the human being who is in the job because, you know, being the monarch is a job and it happens to be one people are born into. But nevertheless, this is something approaching an ordinary human being caught in an extraordinarily and often inhumane set of circumstances. And the Crown, I think, did a brilliant job of dramatizing the contradictions that keep coming up between what the person is expected to do by their institutional position and what they would like to do as, as a living, feeling human being. Um, this is a subject of some great dispute in our household, because I'm convinced that the crown captures the spirit of this, even if it makes a lot of the dialogue up, while my wife is convinced that it's completely fictitious. Uh, there is, she may have a point as well, because we think we know the queen. Uh, we think we know, any, you know the president too, for that matter, but actually not everybody does. And it's very hard to know what somebody in the public eye like that is thinking all the time. But there are people who, who have left um, records and, and diaries and written books about being in her proximity and her service. So, you know, we do know we do know some things. You know, we, we do know yes. that there was tension with her and other people in the family and especially in the early episodes of season one. You know, she she makes very plain. And, you know, I'm I'm sure this is a matter of public record that. She wanted to live a life in the country. She wanted to be she wanted to be surrounded by horses and dogs. You know, that's the life that she should have been destined for if her uncle hadn't abdicated and forced her dad to become king. And, you know, arguably the stress of the job killed him very young. And, you know, she took over in her 20s in 1952. And, you know, you watch yeah. the show and it's not hard to imagine that there were people who were working against her and there was a lot of jealousy within the family. And, you know, her sister Margaret was a larger than life character who probably wanted to be queen. I don't I don't think that that's fictionalized. And, you know, here you have a humble person who was like, yeah, but for whatever reason, the crown has landed on my head. And then what she did with that from that point forward, and you know, even when you look at Charles' upbringing, King Charles now, um, and 
being forced to go to Gordonston and and being tortured and tormented in this boarding school in Scotland that he absolutely hated with no escape. And, you know, the resentment that must have built up there. And, you know, Charles said that it was hell on earth that he absolutely hated that school. But Prince Philip loved it and he thought he knew what was best. And, you know, he was such a looming figure in his son's life. And, you know, it's to have all of those people and all those personalities, and that's just the foundation. And then you have the crazy stuff that happens on top of that and the, <laughs> yeah. the lack of impulsivity control and, you know, people who live a life of privilege uh, with impunity knowing that there will never be any serious repercussions and and how they react to fame and access. It's no different to how reality stars act in this country. I, I think you're right. I mean, this is the material of, of Shakespeare and the material of Greek tragedy, but it's also the material for all of us, of our, of our family lives. Everybody has the dodgy uncle. Everybody has the sibling rivalries. Uh, the, the split that you described between Prince Philip, what he thought was best for Charles, and what Charles felt about it, is the split between the greatest generation and the children of the 60s, between the generation of duty and, and the generation who are more interested in their feelings. You know, this is... Uh, literally the human drama that everybody uh, lives with. And I think the Crown has done this, and I think it served a great purpose in humanising what was, after all, a very old person who in many ways was the last of the Victorians. I think it humanised Elizabeth II as somebody who, whose life had faced her with dilemmas which, on one hand, could be exceptional, but which emotionally were very much uh, familiar to everybody. And, and one of the things that it really shows is that because of her position, she often wasn't able to react as she wanted to. She often wasn't able to lead as she wanted to. She was sometimes pressured by her advisors, who were often stodgier and starchier and very much behind the times and often misadvised. Uh, and, and she is shown, and I think this is true, as adapting and studying very closely the world in which she was living. She may have been raised as the last of the Victorians, but you know, she ended up with a Twitter account and really being a star of the age of social media. And she figured out how to use that to her benefit. And, you know, even the way that the the lessons that she clearly internalized from Diana's passing uh, to the troubles with Harry and Meghan now, um, you know, it's like she had to be stern, but also loving. And I think, you know, these are two people who very selfishly made life difficult for her in the last couple years of her life unnecessarily. Um, but it's interesting now because as William and Harry walked behind uh, the grandmother's coffin in the uh, procession from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall, you know, it's like the entire family is in military dress except for Harry, who was stripped of his titles and duty and uh, the HRH moniker. Um, how does how does Harry emerge from all of this now that his father is the king? Well, Harry has said that he wants to live as a normal person. 
Uh, he's also said that he wants certain privileges that normal people don't have. Um, what has happened is a shift inside the royal family that means it's more likely that he will be a normal person. Um, once when he was young, Harry was third in line to the throne. Now his brother William is first in line after Charles, and Harry is down to fifth. Um, barring an unforeseen disaster of a kind that has never happened in the history of the royal family, Harry is not going to get called upon uh, to become the king. He is also, uh, like many of the minor members, he is basically cut out of what they are calling the slimmed down model of the monarchy. Uh, king Charles has been very much aware that monarchy is an extremely quaint institution, and you mustn't push your luck in a democracy. You can't be seen to be too rich, too extravagant. And at some points in his history, the monarchy has run out of candidates. You know, Queen Victoria, for instance, was the niece of the king. He didn't have any children of his own, William IV. But the current queen has had four children. They've all had lots of children. And suddenly the family pictures are enormously crowded. Now, not all of those people are sustained by the British taxpayer. In fact, most of them are expected now to make their own livings. Difficulty comes when you want to have your cake and eat it. Uh, if you want, for instance, to be completely free uh, in the United States as Harry is, but at the same time, uh, still drawing on the privileges and connections that come with being uh, an active member of the royal family in Britain. And, and those two things aren't really compatible. You can't have a situation when uh, a member of the family or of anyone's family comes into the room wearing a microphone because he's doing a Netflix documentary. This is the terms under which Harry is now operating. Um, that's not sustainable. And no wonder, therefore, that uh, the rest of the family are very wary. On the other hand, when you see the pictures of the two of them together again and you hear that there's a big effort, uh, we recognise this perhaps from our own family histories. When there's a death in the family, it does give people a chance to reorganise things and reflect and, and reconnect. So we may yet uh, see a smoother ride ahead. But if it is smoother, it'll be because Harry is much less a part of things. Yeah, I'm fine with that. And, and you know, it's like his <laughs> they've created a cottage industry just chirping about how unfairly they've been treated. And, uh, you know, he he has no concept of the privileges that he has enjoyed. You know, it's like Margaret Mead famously said, the fish doesn't know it's wet. And that is Prince Harry. Yeah. Like the, the prince doesn't know he's coddled. And it's like, hey, man, if you're making $100 million from Netflix producing absolutely nothing, um, then you take that money and hire your own damn security, you know, just like every other famous person in the country does. And, you know, stop trying to go on the take and, you know, acting entitled and demanding things and not wanting to be a part of the firm, but being mad when your children don't have uh, preposterous titles. It's, uh, it's, you know, it just, it gives you whiplash. We have more of this interview in moments coming up. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Uh, there was a, a very funny story in the New York Post today about, uh, there are two stories actually. One, how they might let 100 people from Clarence House, which is where he's been living for the last several years with the Queen Consort, uh, Camilla, uh, he has to let 100 people go because they're not going to keep that up and running as their palace. They're moving into Buckingham Palace 
And uh, so you are going to hear more and more of these stories, like the one that came out about Charles traveling with his own uh, toilet seat and his own yes, toilet <laughs> paper, the, the Kleenex velvet, which I'm fascinated by. Um, but also he has to have special food sent ahead of him. So it arrives before he gets to wherever he's going and he has his shoelaces ironed. This is all uh, true, apparently attested to by the people who did the ironing and collected the toilet paper. On this subject, the late uh, Queen Mother, Elizabeth II's mother, famously uh, had a kind of brown wrapping paper in her toilets, which she'd got used to during the Second World War and uh, stuck with it. Um, So Prince Charles, as he then was, does not come off very well with these kind of stories. Um, I'm afraid they are actually pretty typical of monarchy down the ages. Um, I think Elizabeth II is unusual, by the, even by the standards of British monarchy, when it comes uh, to not being a prima donna. The, the question also is uh, whether Charles, apart from being very pampered, uh, keeps his opinions to himself. Before this, he, he's always been very forthcoming, and government ministers in Britain used to complain about what they called his black spider memos because his handwriting was terrible. And he was in the habit of sending off these notes to the government on on political issues of the day. Now, in Britain, we made this very clear in, in uh, 1688 that um, we can have a monarchy, but the, the monarch doesn't decide these things. You know, the elected politicians run the country and the monarch is a symbolic head who signs off on, you know, laws and the changes. And that's it. If he does the efficient that as king, and the dignified. Yes, this is what they called it, the efficient and the dignified. Now, in order for him to be dignified, he has to say very little, and that will make them and him also look more efficient. He has said that he won't do it, but I have to say, you know, the leopard may get a crown, but it's not going to change its spots. And I think we are likely to see uh, more public statements and more of these kind of controversies. And the more of those there are, then the more we examine the royal family uh, through the light of, for instance, how they treat their employees. And then the question of, well, is this really the time to fire an entire household when they've supported you all the way? That sort of thing comes to the fore as well. And Elizabeth II was a superb manager of the media. And uh, Charles has not been as successful so far. He will need to learn very quickly how to do it. He does have a great deal of of, uh, credit. There's a great reservoir of public affection that has been built up by the Queen over seven decades in Britain and elsewhere. And um, he has this in his favour, and hopefully he will adapt to it and change. I don't think his his father had that much faith in him. But he's 73 years old. You know, he, it, it's also people People change, they evolve, they grow. He's been waiting around a long, long time. And, you know, it is a finite amount of time he has to theoretically rule. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Do you think the monarchy survives this? Because there are a lot of people in Great Britain who are looking around going, you know, yeah, we love the queen. She was here our whole lives. She was the constant figure. Uh, and we always feared this moment would come and... And here it is. So is is this the time when Great Britain moves on and gets rid of the monarchy? Or is it is it such an implicit institution within the country that it just has to stay? Well, I think you're right. You know, the Queen uh, polled even higher than the institution she represents, that people really saw her as a great person to have around. Um, the institution is still enormously popular. 
But it does occasionally sag in the public's estimation if, if the royals let down their end of the bargain. Um, Charles, as you said, he, he served the longest apprenticeship in human history. He's 73 and he's finally got his proper job. Um, he is in very good health. He's, he's, he's been sure to keep himself in shape. He's, he's a big enthusiast for organic food. Um, so he, he's got some good amount of time, I imagine. But I suspect that his reign is going to be seen as a transitional one. We're leaving... The, the era of the Queen who, you know, as I said, was born in the age of the British Empire and the Second World War and lived to a totally different age. I think Charles will be a transitional figure into this newer, slimmed down 21st century monarchy. And in the long term, I think that uh, the monarchy of William and Kate, which is you know bound to happen sooner or later, I think that will be on very solid footing. They're both enormously popular in Britain. Uh, people of uh, their generation and younger, I think, see more of themselves in William and Kate, who, who have done their best to appear to be a down-to-earth uh, couple and are very much uh, have had typical experiences in education, in social life, you know, typical experiences of a kind that, say, Prince Charles didn't really have when he was growing up. Yes, that's that's a really solid analysis. And I think you're absolutely true. And, you know, there are, are people certainly in this country who look at Kate Middleton like, oh, you know, normal person, normal family, went to college, met and married her college sweetheart and, uh, you know, is, is a great hands on mom. And, you know, one of the things that she should thank Meghan Markle for is Meghan Markle has such horrible behavior. She's such a professional whiner that. Just by Kate being silent and graceful, she looks fantastic by comparison. I, I think so. And, and this goes to show how quickly an institution like monarchy, which we, we think of as being unchanging, how quickly it can actually change. One of the reasons that Charles was not allowed to marry Camilla when he wanted to in the 1970s is that his parents wanted him to marry another member of royal house or at least uh, a major aristocrat. Um, and eventually he married uh, Diana, who was from an aristocratic family. Um, the marriage did not work out. Charles it was very happy for William to marry Kate, who is the daughter uh, of uh, a pilot, I think, and a uh, an air stewardess, who later went into business together, completely normal middle-class people. And he was equally happy uh, for Harry to uh, marry Meghan Markle, who is, again, a completely normal person in many respects and quite exceptional, as you're saying, in others. So the royal family uh, may have become stranger because they've become more and more part of the world of celebrity culture. But as people, they've actually become less strange. They've become more and more like us, more and more, as you say, like actors in a reality TV drama. Well, it'll be interesting watching seasons five and six of The Crown. I know they, they paused for a couple days. We will have a new queen once more uh, taking us into the modern era. And it'll be a different viewing experience because, you know, as we watched it and, you know, these episodes and seasons unfolded, you know, you thought to yourself, oh, she's she's right over there in England. You know, the, this person who's so fascinating and, you know, whose life is so accidentally rich, you know, she's still among us and, and that is no longer the case. So it will make the viewing experience different, but no less interesting. Uh, Dominic Green, you can read some of his stuff in the Wall Street Journal right now. Uh, you can check out his article about the Queen as cultural icon. Dominic, thank you for being a part of the podcast. I have really appreciated this discussion. It's been great. Kennedy, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, dear. It has been Kennedy Saves the World. I'm Kennedy.
for more podcasts from my friends at Fox, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Oh, go ahead and leave me a review while you're there. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You've been listening to Kennedy Saves the World on the Fox News Podcast Network. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.